Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us on this Friday morning for the weekly update. Mr. Holine, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, thank you. Good to be with you, Nachum. And I take this opportunity to wish Shalom Dworkin a Mazel Tov. I'm sure it was an amazing bar mitzvah celebration last evening, Mr. Holine. Well, it was truly remarkable, and he's an amazing young man, goes to Paris Yisrael, and he's, uh, thank God, became a man and assumed the responsibilities with great dignity and devotion, and he's, uh, thank God, the, the Shabbos, he'll be, uh, he'll be doing all the things that a bar mitzvah boy does, and, uh, and then Baruch Hashem, it's another important message and milestone. And every child is uh, is our response to the attempts to take away our future. And every Jewish child is the future of the Jewish people. No, no question about that. Some might say that you're a bit biased in this case. I, not being a grandparent yet, can't speak to this topic. But apparently, grandparents in general heap the praise on their grandchildren, Mr. Online. Yeah, but they lie. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> So to Shalom, we say Mazel Tov, and of course to Mayor and Javi, we say Mazel Tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. By the way, speaking of celebrations, community-wide celebration, let's at least give kudos to those who did come out, the thousands who were there on Sunday celebrating Israel on Fifth Avenue. As you've pointed out a million times before, it's an important message to the uh, local Jewish uh, community and beyond, to the American community in general, including Washington, and of course to Israel as well. By the way, a lot of good representation from Israel on Sunday. There there was a confluence of factors that different uh, delegations had come. One didn't even make it uh, because their flight was delayed, but uh, others were there, and and the weather was beautiful, and people very spirited, uh, I think, this time. Uh, And uh, maybe it's because of the Jerusalem 50 celebrations that really lifted people. Yeah, I think that Uh, helps. Okay. That helps, but yeah. but also I think people more and more recognize, you know, the importance right now. You see all the uncertainties, the elections in in Great Britain, the events with Qatar, with Saudi Arabia versus Iran and Turkey. The the I mean, literally every day a new new question marks. Even domestically, the the obsession with the, Mr. Comey's hearings yesterday and with the who, who said what to whom. Uh, the the I think people are looking at what is really important and, and trying to refocus, and the parade is an opportunity to do that. And But we have to remember that it can't just be one day a year. It's got to be carried out, like Yom Yerushalayim, the celebration of Yerushalayim of Jerusalem has to be continued throughout the year. It's not enough just to, to do it once or every 50 years to celebrate the reunification, but to celebrate it every day. We do it in our tefillot, but people don't pay attention to it. That so many of our prayers deal with Yushalayim, with the return, the significance to remind us all the time of it, and that focus will help us with, our, our, with sustaining the inheritance that we we owe to future generations. No question about it. It's one of the reasons we've already here started counting down to April the 19th of 2018, which is Israel 70. And I'm not kidding. We've already started discussing it here internally and on the air. So, uh, hey, why not Why not celebrate? We, we do such a good job when the bad news, unfortunately, comes across the table. Why not celebrate the good things that the community has uh, to celebrate worldwide. So Israel 70 is coming up next year. Plenty of details as we get closer and closer. And by the way, 
Um, I'm, I'm reminding our audience that uh, that very often, well, you know, let me let me remind the audience about something that's unifying for a moment. Today's the third yard site of the three boys, Gilad, Naftali, and um, Ayal. Uh, the three boys brought a tremendous amount of Jewish unity and really unity from uh, around the uh, uh, entire global spectrum, as uh, Racheli Frankel would say, uh, during that time. And uh, in some ways, it's hard to believe it's three years. In some ways, it's e- easy to believe that it's already three years. Um, but those types of, and it's a shame that it took that type of event to unify everybody. But I'm just for a moment concentrating on the unifying event, Malcolm. There's plenty to divide us. Let us concentrate for a moment on an event like this, which, of course, united and continues to unite us. Absolutely. And, and it is sad that it has to be. I mean, we should come together when there are bad things, but that shouldn't be the, the essence. Look at it. It says in the parsha about the Samachtem, uh, and you, you you have to rejoice, and we have to be commanded sometimes to rejoice, because it's it's too easy to fall into the into the trap of of only looking at the negatives and and responding to them. But they say the hardest commandment is sometimes to infuse joy into our celebrations and to our daily life, and realize all the great miracles that have occurred to us and the things that have happened to us that really warrant. Uh, us and 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 if we and I said this last night, so to give me one second about the, in next week's parsha where we talk about the, the Miraglim, the scouts who went to Israel because you can't say spies now, but the scouts <laughs> who went to Israel that that they say that Gehagavim uh, that we were like grasshoppers, but if you read it carefully, it says in our eyes and in theirs that others will look at us as we look at ourselves. And we have to think about the image we project and that that often determines the outcome. That if you go into something with a negative negative outlook, if you can only rally because you have a negative and because you don't think of the consequences and you don't think about how others perceive it, then you're missing the whole point. And that the, the... the determination about how others will see us depends on how we see ourselves. If we see ourselves as weak, if we see ourselves only in a negative sense, then that's how the world will perceive us and treat us. Well, if we come in with confidence and strength, then you see that the world... And that, look at Israel. Look at the whole world, the region. Everybody turns to Israel, all these countries that whose majority of their population is still hostile and stuff. Because Israel sees itself as strong and, and, and as a, a significant. Right, but not always and not in every political arena. Right. Uh, it's not always, and, and some of it's really frustrating to watch. In fact, the words you just mentioned I wish could go straight to the ears of some of the leaders, the political leaders in Israel. You remind me of the famous Ben-Gurion quote, and I know this is really paraphrasing, so I don't think he said it exactly like this, but he's not worried about what the nations say he's worried about what the jews do and once the jews decide to do something then as you say you know the 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 actual uh projection or the actual uh reputation of the jewish people could change in an instant long um, before ben gurion shimshon fall hirsch and the first rashi and chumish says said i'm not when when it says you know the, the first rashi explains why the torah begins not with the first mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, but why it begins with the creation of the world, because he said the time will come when the world will say, listen, Matem, you are robbers, you stole the land. And you will be able to show, this is what Rashi says, that, uh, according to his father, that, that God gave this, created the world, he gave this land to us as an eternal inheritance. And Hirsch says, it's not because you have to worry what the nations, what the non-Jews will say. you got to worry about when Jews have doubts. Right. Not, the world will always challenge us. But if the Jews have doubts, then we're in trouble. 
That is for sure. Okay, uh, we move on to some of the events of the week and some of the news of the last few days. What do you make of this uh, a vote in Great Britain that you alluded to? We, we spoke almost jokingly about the possibility of a miscalculation by the prime minister. It, it seems to have materialized in that way. What do you think the aftermath of this vote is going to be? Well, I think, I mean, the implications are... are tremendous uh, internally for Great Britain, but I think all of us ought to take note about what happened, and I think uh, a lot of it, from what I can see, may, may uh, be the, the uh, turnout of young people who are who were rejecting uh, her her platform, and whether it's over specifically Brexit, the exit from, from the European Union, and the fact that they work so slowly, people aren't sure about the impact, and the huge mistakes she made with her manifesto with the policy paper that she put forward and it was she who called it it was um, mrs may who called it thinking that she was going to expand her parliamentary majority now she's lost it but uh, i am sure that the pundits are going to start drawing comparisons to here in the united states about this uncertainty about you know what will happen in the 2018 off-year elections for for congress which obviously are very important let alone the 2020 elections, which people are beginning to focus and the the obsessive uh, focus on on some of the developments of the last few days, rather than on the really important substantive issues that uh, that challenge us and, fo- and we're focused on. And this this is very significant for the Jewish community that and and for Israel because the leader of the Labor Party. Uh, has been labeled as as having made anti-Semitic comments or being associated with it, and uh, certainly hostile to Israel over a long period of time. Uh, so the implications are are very serious. And the question, you know, how this plays out in in the future for their negotiations, I don't think they can revisit the Brexit vote, or are likely to. But uh, and will she govern with a minority government? Uh, and how that will affect uh, her essentially pro-Israel stance. When they, me. when they talk about a formation of government, it's essentially the same way it works in Israel, where now she'll get permission to try to form it, and and, and again, like you say, it won't be a full majority, which we never have in Israel, by the way. There's never really a full majority. Uh, but in uh, but in the House of Commons, that does happen, or it's very common. Um, well, she, would have a minority, she would pick up one of the other minority parties, right. not the Labour Party. Right. And and it's interesting to see that other parties, you know, are, are, are disappearing in, in England. It's uh, it, It'll be studied for a long time, but I think it's it's an important message. We, should, we have to understand the dynamic behind it. Uh, Corbyn tried, I think, to po- uh, posit himself sort of like Bernie Sanders, certainly some of his positions, and appealing to, to young voters who did turn out. This whole era of the electoral process around the world is unbelievable to analyze. And it's uh, the whole atmosphere is one that, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of, how this is going to be referred to years from now in terms of this period of time with all these different unexpected votes taking place. I think that's true. There, there are um, more elections coming up, uh, but the... the um, no one, no the, one was surprised the, by the Iran uh, result. No. And, and nobody's nobody really can predict anything anymore. Well, nobody even was... though we have more information and more and closer scrutiny, you see that the polls and things as they were in America yeah. are way but off. The, but the only reason, for instance, in France that anybody suspected that she might win was because of the atmosphere. It, it, and the election basically did end up, you know, going according to the polls in that one. It just I guess it depends, you know, 
what the election is and who the personalities are. Well, the, the feeling in France was that the, di- the dynamic was with her, that it was moving right. in her direction, when in fact it seems to have been arrested. And, and I think people still in Europe don't want to vote for what they perceive to be extremist uh, parties. But here you have a pretty extreme left on the left side in Corbyn, and uh, and the Jewish community is obviously very disturbed in Great Britain because of, of what he stands for, and he probably didn't get more than 15% of the Jewish vote. Yeah. Hey, what do you think of Nikki Haley? I think I may vote for her for future Jewish leader. What do you think? <laughs> well, when she becomes Jewish, she can do that. Exactly. But uh, obviously her visit to Israel, very high profile, very visible. And uh, I'm not sure in this administration that's a good thing, but uh, she's she's clearly saying the right things. Talks about the U.N. as a cesspool against bias against Israel. And uh, hopefully she'll come back and, and continue to do that at the United Nations. Do you think the U.S. will leave the United Nations uh, Human Rights Council? No, I don't think so right now. But, uh, I mean, this has been talked about for a long time. It's so biased, and it's... it's uh, it, I mean, there's almost no way to overcome the bias. It appears that, that you have the worst nations in the world sitting in judgment, constantly condemning Israel. And these things are having implications. We have important things coming out of the United Nations, and they don't get much coverage. But, you know, the, 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 the listing of companies that do business in in, uh, in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank, you know, that, that if, you, if you have an ATM machine there, that bank... Could could become under scrutiny. Right. Could become part of the blacklisting or whatever. And and the fact that the United Nations is involved in drawing up such a list and the Human Rights Council, and they the now they're talking about apartheid state report and the report that they're preparing about the costs of the occupation for fifty years. This becomes fodder for going to the International Criminal Court or in some future negotiations demanding reparations, saying, look, the United Nations said this is how much money we lost because of the, quote, occupation. This is a week when people should be reminded in the home about the, how, how did they come into this situation. Did Israel close the Straits of Tehran? Did Israel throw out the peacekeeping forces and, and, the, the, and the West Bank because Jordan didn't listen to Israel's admonitions request? begging them to stay out of the war with Golda. All of them went to the king and King Hussein and begged him not to get in, and then he put his troops under Egyptian control because he really believed their side that they were winning in the war. I mean, people have to be reminded of this. It is, it is incredible to hear some of the reports, to see the op-eds. While people, most of the people are, are alive still from that period, or many are alive, who witnessed it, who remember it, and yet they completely rewrite the history. It's incredible. Look in major newspapers and publications, rewriting the history of, of what happened and what the implications of the Six Day War were. Was was this yeah. was this one true that Israel was ready to use an atomic bomb and detonated in uh, the Sinai? First of all, I think Israel would always be extremely reluctant to introduce and said they will never be the first to use nuclear weapons. Second of all. If the circumstances required it, I think countries have to do what they have to do to protect their citizens from uh, from the annihilation that Nasser threatened, that the others threatened to drive Israel into the sea. Russia joined them in that threat, if you remember, and supported uh, oh, yeah. them. People don't remember what how isolated Israel was and the only arms they were getting from France. And then a few weeks before the war, France uh, backed off of it as well. I didn't, even, I, I didn't even realize the buildup pre-war on the Syrian border near the Golan. Of course. 
and uh, yes, absolutely. And and uh, and Israel was facing it from all sides, uh, and the uh, the world did not who had guaranteed, including the United States, the freedom of passage in the Straits of Tehran, which was essential for all the exports of Israel. They they did not do anything to to enforce the international, let alone to keep the peacekeeping force there or the other things and all the other provocations uh, that took place leading up to it. And those who, who remember those months before, Israel's survival was in doubt. People today see of Israel see Israel as much stronger. It was not the same circumstance then, and and it was totally alone. Right. No question about it, except for one, totally alone, except for right. one about being, one. except for one being that made sure a miracle would occur in a record amount of time. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com on the NachumSegal network, and of course on our beloved NSN app. By the way, on the Jerusalem resolution in the Senate, it went 90 to nothing in favor, well, in favor, maybe the wrong word, in support of Israel and in support of pressuring um, uh, President Trump to move the embassy. So for people like me, who are always yelling at people like you about this issue, it's good to see that, uh, again, American Jewish leadership has done its job and has gone ahead and uh, made sure that the Senate would go ahead and hold the president's feet to the fire on this. It's important to keep that pressure on. Absolutely, and I have to credit uh, Chuck Schumer and Senator McDonald, uh, McConnell, who who led this uh, effort, and the uh, hopefully will be similar measures in the House. That doesn't work exactly the same way, but it's a very important because it it, it is a reaffirmation, and this is what we had sought of the '95 law, right. which includes about the and moving the embassy and all of the other aspects, whether it's uh, from granting passports in, in uh, let's say, Jerusalem-Israel, for those born in Jerusalem, it has many ramifications, but it was a very strong statement, and when it passes by that majority in a Senate so split, uh, I think it's even a stronger declaration. I know we got to go to Qatar and Iran, but give me just two things here first. When you see the whole Sears, Amazon, Free Palestine shirts, and the whole that whole... You know, my reaction is I never know if it's true. You know, when you see this stuff, you know, all of a sudden go viral on the web, you have no idea if, the, if it's really happening or not. What's your reaction when you see that? It's actually a good reaction. I think you're right. You have to be skeptical because there's so so many things that end up, and then people uh, exert a lot of energy, and we find out that it's not quite the way it was portrayed because anybody can put this up, and anybody, right. you can see they're hacking every government in the world. They can certainly hack a serious uh, website, but... Uh, in this case, it wasn't Sears admitted they'll take it down. I, I just don't understand how it gets up in the first place. I mean, these things get get that, that they have no one who who looks at this and says, "Hey, this is this is a political statement. This is a very controversial. We should not be we should not be promoting this uh, item." And uh, but they responded immediately to to its removal. The problem is it was also up on other sites. I think, according to the reports, I never checked the other sites though. Right. Also, the second thing is, we mentioned the U.N., and I know the Prime Minister of Israel was in Africa this week. He comes back, proclaims that we're going to see a change in the way African nations vote in the U.N., but am I right that every time an Israeli leader says that, when push comes to shove, we rarely see that change in the African votes of the U.N.? Well, we do see some change and some shifting of, of the votes that, that has taken place. We've seen more abstentions by African countries, and it, this is a process. Remember, there's been many years, decades of estrangement when they were forced after the, after the Six-Day War, one other, the outcome that 
uh, countries that had very close relations with Israel broke because they were promised that pot of gold at the end of the oily rainbow that the Arabs put pressure on them to, to disassociate and that they would compensate them for it. And the, uh, the, the, this is a process now. This is the second trip to Africa, and there will be a third one uh, coming up by the prime minister. And we have very close relations with many of the African countries and leaders. It's imperative. Africa is a, is a frontier. It, it, Israel has much to offer them, and that's what they say. And and many African leaders are visiting Israel so much so that it hardly even gets proper news attention uh, when they come there. And one of the things is that the king of Togo, who has declared that he is Jewish, so he's really come far. And uh, uh, the reception the prime minister got was was really very warm and very positive. Yeah, pretty amazing. A lot of technology and other things that I know the African uh, countries, the African nations, so one from Israel. Um, all right, the Emir of Qatar. All right, so the, it, so is this what happened? What happened was when he starts to uh, describe tensions with the president, meaning President Trump. And when he's, you know, recommending that his country get closer with Iran, and when he praises the militants of Hamas, is that when Saudi Arabia and others decide to distance themselves from Qatar's statements? Well, in fact, this has been a long, long process that Qatar has flirted with terrorists. They've supported Hamas. They support the Muslim Brotherhood. They provided funds to some of the militia in Syria. ISIS or not? They have, there are accusations that they supported ISIS, but they certainly supported other of the radical groups in, in uh, Syria, and no doubt that they became the major funders, especially after Iran pulled out of, uh, of uh, Hamas, and the Hamas leaders were, were in Doha, supposedly, the week, that Sunday before the break with them. They actually kicked them out or said they kicked them out, but we know that it's a revolving door. They kick them out and they come back in the back door. The, and if you wonder how these radicals... One, one thing, but the sure. really one of the big provocations uh, was the, the con constant criticism uh, by Al Jazeera, which is funded by Qatar, which has a civilian population of a couple hundred thousand uh, out of a total of uh, over a million, but most of them are foreign workers, and they they... Um, they used Al Jazeera to promote Muslim Brotherhood against President Sisi in Egypt, against the Saudi government, constantly um, uh, playing with the Iranians and believe, uh, uh, trying to undermine some of their uh, neighboring regimes. And uh, this, these are all things that contributed uh, to this uh, buildup. And I think maybe when they got together in Riyadh, they said enough is enough. And they gave them uh, an ultimatum to to start to to back off. And you get Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, uh, others to to uh, um, uh, to to unite and to take a common stand. Did and they, they've cut them off by sea, by air. This is a huge move. Did they did yeah. they in fact back off? Not yet, but they, they and so the Iranians offer them ports and and the right to fly over, but. Uh, the, the, the majority of their trade is is with their neighbors and their access. The, um, the the Iranians are now talking about the fact that they could benefit from the billion dollar food imports that uh, Qatar does every year. Uh, we have another consideration, and that is that we have a huge air force base with ten thousand Americans there. But I believe that that um, UAE uh, that uh, Qatar will not do anything to threaten it. Or to, they threaten to close it, but they won't because a it protects them. Yeah, they have the most <laughs> modern air force fleet in the world sitting in 
and in their backyard to protect them. And second, that that uh, you know they make a fortune from it, yeah. supplying the the ten thousand Americans uh, that are there. All right. So, not that we needed any evidence, any further evidence, but now we know even even more so why there's no problem funding funding these radical organizations and why when it comes to Gaza, for instance, and the Egyptian border, why there's essentially unlimited money. I mean, there's unlimited support, if you get, right? I mean, I know that this is overstating the obvious, but if Qatar is involved to the degree that you're describing, there's, there's, it's, there's never a money issue when it comes Qatar's, to... Qatar's uh, per capita income is $130,000 a person, um, the highest in the world, because they have... Uh, they, they found a lot of gas as opposed to all their neighbors who are oil that they have gas and they have the, the biggest LNG liquid nat- uh, gas um, exporter and uh, and the income comes to the government and to the Altani family and then the people get uh, live a good lifestyle but most of them don't work because they have all these foreign workers doing the, the actual labor and uh, all they have to do is capture the gas and, and they've been selling it. Right. Then he, they've gotten involved in, in the, the political manifestations in the region and while it could be an idyllic place, they have uh, they also had tremendous fights of sons overthrowing the fathers uh, history of that and the um, and and the flirtations with Iran. Their oil their gas field rather uh, is contiguous with that of Iran what we call South Pars you know we've discussed it over the years because people they were going to explore it and and they have not really uh, done so yet but Qatar has to consider what the implications are the fact that that their uh, gas field bleeds into that of of, um, Iran. All right, two things. Number one, was President Trump correct in taking the credit for this, meaning there would not have been this type of reaction from countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, etc., if not for the fact that he was in office? I have no idea. No, I mean, we know. How can you tell now whether what they would have done? They may have more confidence now, believing that the United States is back in the region and the meeting in Riyadh, bringing them together, putting the Saudi Arabia up front. But you also have a, a young generation, MBS in in Saudi Arabia, MBZ in the UAE, others who are much more forceful and having CC in Egypt. Uh, aligned with them, and I think the King of Morocco, others, uh, has also emboldened them. All right, and and last week we discussed what's happening on the uh, at the Gaza border. I alluded to the fact that God forbid there could be action there this summer, and you agreed it's possible. And we went through all that uh, again. Because and 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 this is because of the Iranian and now understanding the Qatar influence in that region. Meaning, if they want to go ahead and fund or demand. That the Muslim Brotherhood or ISIS, for that matter, or really or Hamas, after all, you know, are public supporters of Hamas, that they should go ahead and start action on that border. They're essentially in control at that point, right? That that who's in control? I mean, at this point, I would say Qatar as well, but the Iranians and them at this point could give a directive to Hamas that it's time to start trouble at that area. Oh, absolutely. They, they. Um, well, we'll have to see whether they're able to con- continue to contribute and fund them. They were cutting back, we believe, but Iran was increasing the funding to Hamas, and Hamas and Iran boast the fact that they control Hamas, Hezbollah, that they have Israel surrounding them on two sides. One of the, are trying to do it on the Golan uh, side, and we saw stories this week of, of IRGC presence getting closer, and there were some 
military actions uh, unattributed, but uh, what, what may highlight the effort, uh, Israel's commitment to keeping them away from uh, from their border. Uh, so absolutely that they they are uh, a very strong influence on, on what um, on what Hamas does and now we see Turkey getting into it on the side of uh, of Qatar uh, trying to be relevant for one thing but also uh, against Saudi Arabia so this is this has a lot of regional implications there are a lot of things that could come out of this yet yeah and Turkey never really I don't know it never it never seems that they care about not being on Israel's side or, you know, or, or going to the quote-unquote other side in the region? Or, or is he still really, you know, sitting on the fence and, and you know, double-talking each and every time? President Erdogan, yeah. of Turkey? Yeah. Well, he, I think he does that as a rule, but, uh, you know, he has taken some erratic measures uh, within his own country um, but in, in this case he hasn't rushed and he's taken uh, steps but he's he, they, they authorized the Turkish parliament even sending troops to um, to, to, to Qatar so again uh, we should not underestimate and remember this also relates to the support of different groups in Syria where Iran they just reported this week has 42 brigades and 138 battalions of the Shiite militia who've come from Afghanistan, Lebanon, Hezbollah, you know, the uh, Al-Aqsa brigades, the uh, Pakistanis, the Yemenis, uh, etc. Al-Aqila, um, not Al-Aqsa brigades. And the, the um, so what's happening there and somehow mirrors what's happening in, in facts and reacts to what's happening in uh, Syria and in the region as a whole. This, this has a lot of implications and the funding that goes to terrorists if Qatar is really cut back and Saudi Arabia too has to look at its own record in some of these areas but uh, Qatar is being uh, restricted or if it would restrict its funding that goes to terrorist organizations and throws out Hamas and these other and, and their support for terrorist groups generally, it will make a difference in the region. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cutting off the funding is, is obviously one of the most important things, and they have the ability to really cut off a lot of funding. Um, by the way, I'm so disciplined. I'm so curious what that sound is in the background over there, but I'm not asking Malcolm. <laughs> I don't know what it is either, but I don't know. I see tanks rolling in. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if Flatbush is under attack. I mean, my God. <laughs> it's the attack of the gardeners. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Uh, who's responsible for the attacks within Iran this week? That's a very good question. I'm not sure the answer uh, is uh, clear yet, but uh, it, they seem to be ISIS, and ISIS is responding to the fact that they've been attacked from uh, in Syria, and uh, the Iranians are, are playing a bigger role in that. Uh, ISIS is one of the uh, blocks for uh, uh, to Iranian designs to build that highway from Iran through Iraq, Syria, Turkey, part of the area ISIS controls, and they are obviously a block in fighting against uh, Iran's expansive role there, but the role is expanding all the time in Syria. I mean, they're not putting their own soldiers, but the IRGC is clearly a dominant force there, so are others, uh, and ISIS is striking back against the attacks against them, and, and the fact that they were able to carry it out on two locations, very iconic places in in. Uh, Iran is significant. That's what's always so confusing. I think it's been like this. 
essentially since the quote-unquote Arab Spring, it's almost impossible to, re- to understand sometimes which countries are aligned with what terror groups. Because they switch. <laughs> they do, you're right. They do realign periodically, but you have to look at the Sunni-Shiite split, but sometimes it crosses the lines, as we see in regard to Qatar. But what and, I'm saying is, yeah. but, but I'm bringing it up in regard, you know, it's funny to hear, let me funny, it's interesting to hear about terror attacks within Iran, because we associate all terror groups with Iran. Yes, but Iran, this is not the first time, and, and often it doesn't get publicized here. It was so public and so visible, uh, and they have some internal dissension, too, uh, which people don't realize, and they do a very good job of suppressing it, uh, a very bad bad thing, but a good job they do generally because you know, more than half the population are not really Farsis, and not, they're Baluchis and Azeris, and etc., uh, and they have a lot of dissent, especially amongst young people, and they're very, very uh, tough on, on it, uh, very uh, adamant in, in the Muhammad's control over the society. But the um, but seeing it so visible, yes, was a, an unusual thing that that, uh, that the whole world got to see it. By the way, you published in the Daily Alert, I think it was actually today, the story from June 1st about the uh, arrests in Michigan. So the, are, these, are these terrorists that are... You know, thugs and, you know, underlings? Or are these terrorists that are, you know, the heads of organizations in this country? Well, they're arrested in Bronx, in the Bronx and in Michigan, of supposed Hezbollah operatives. And, uh, you know, they, these are um, yeah, these are real threats. These Serious are not, guys. Not, not things to be taken lightly. Well, I hope American authorities, uh, I mean, I, I, I would guess they know about it, <laughs> I would assume. Well, they're, they're the ones who carried out the arrest. <laughs> Understood. But, Yeah, but I hope our people also take it seriously and that we have to keep the pressure up because too often, you know, there's a revolving door justice for them, too. And people, this is not the only case we have right now. There was somebody who was sentenced this week, and we have to make sure that the sentences are serious and and that that it's not, uh, you know, a slap on the wrist type treatment. Malcolm Holmline joins me in uh, recognizing Radiohead and Brian Adams. Two of the latest acts to not cave into the BDS movement. They are going to Israel, and, and this is happening, of course, by the hundreds. I think every single week we're hearing about more and more groups and acts and singers, etc., entertainers that are heading to Israel, which has to be recognized. No question about that. And see how many people are speaking out now against the BDS from that, uh, the entertainment industry and, and related industries who, who did not for a long time at all 50 governors signed statements against BDS you know, legislation more than 20 states against the boycott divestment movement uh, and I hope that um, I mean we're still seeing the challenges especially on campus but uh, and, the, and the United Nations uh, with its um, p- potential blacklisting so uh, yeah, it's important because it's, it is a statement, and it's a statement that, that the BDS campaign will not win if we stand up to it. And finally, and uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if Malcolm joins me on this one, but I could certainly say that, uh, that we know from past history that when certain rallies and demonstrations and gatherings take place uh, for, the, for certain purposes regarding a policy in the state of Israel, and they take place 6,000 miles away in this area, very often those rallies turn into complete anti-state of Israel rallies, people should think twice, if not more, uh, before heading to a demonstration and gathering like that. I don't know if you want to join me on that one, but I wanted to make sure to uh, mention that during this Well, I think people have to be very careful, and I've told, that's why I started off 
by saying that we have to look at how we're seen in other people's eyes is is how we it is based in large part on how we see ourselves and that even if there might be a difference over a particular issue the, the world doesn't see it as a, as that issue they see us that Jews are turning against Israel and it's such a delicate and and a significant time that uh, the implications and the ramifications of it may not be what people even well-intentioned people, let alone others who will stand on Fifth Avenue and, and mock and make fun of, uh, uh, allow themselves to become the, the, the targets of mockery as well. Uh, so I think your message is important. Well said, Mr. Honline. Not that you need my approbation. Mazal Tov on the Bar Mitzvah, our best to the entire family. We will uh, speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Have a wonderful show. Be well. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here on JM in the AM.